0: We, um, we are going to jump back into Matthew. I looked back just to see how long have we been in Matthew. It was May of 2017 when we started in Matthew. No, it was it was May of, uh, of last year. It's been a wonderful series, but we're getting close to the end, so we're going to finish it up here probably in the next few weeks. And um, and I'm really hoping that you guys are finding just some, a sense of clarity, but also a sense of... Um, direction, in your own personal lives, of, of the significance of what it is to be a Christian, what it is to be a Christ follower and a Christ obeyer uh, in this day and age. It's, a, it's an, a, a magnificent, actually it's a miracle that we have been brought from death into life. And so I hope that you guys are, are being encouraged by the series. And um, so as we begin, we're going to be looking at Matthew, uh, the bulk of Matthew 20 today Um, But before we do that, I just want to um, set out with a little bit of a reminder, um, because I know it's been some time since we were here, it's probably been about five weeks since we were in Matthew, and so just by way of setting the stage, um, as we launched into this uh, series on the study of Matthew, we did so um, with the aim of what I believe was actually Matthew's aim as well, which is to reveal Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel of a king. That was really Matthew's whole emphasis, was to show Jesus Christ as the messianic fulfillment of God's promise to Israel, of giving them a king. And as we began, one of the things that we said is that is that a king, in order to be a king, he must have a kingdom. Otherwise, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? A king has a kingdom, and we saw that what Jesus was doing in his ministry, the things that he was saying the miracles that he was enacting, um, the teachings that he gave to his disciples were all in that trajectory of the revelation of his kingdom. He is the king. This is his kingdom. This is what it looks like to live within the kingdom. And a kingdom, we gave this definition, is that a kingdom is the king's rule in the king's place over a king's people. A very simple definition. A kingdom is a king's rule, or let's be more specific. The kingdom of God is the king's rule in the king's place over the king's people. And added to that, we also said it includes both his precepts and his presence. And I've said this a few times, but again, I'll just say it again this morning as a way of reminding us as we get back in from Advent into the gospel of Matthew. God's plan of redemption for humanity through Jesus Christ's incarnation was to save us not only from sin and death, but to save us not from just that, but into a life, right? And not just life that's in the future sense of eternity with God, but save us into life that is now. In other words, there is something to be experienced of the kingdom of God's life in this present day and age. That's what we live and that's what we walk in. And that life can be understood as life within his kingdom. He saved us out of the present earthly kingdom and into his eternal kingdom. That's the place of his realm, the eternal kingdom, the place of his realm. And so we've sought to identify the answer to this question in light of this, what does it mean? What does this life in God's kingdom look like? What does it mean to live as a kingdom inhabitant, an eternal kingdom habitant here on earth? Not in the sense of what are the benefits, although there are some, right? But is what, how, how am I changed? How do I reflect this change of position from the earthly kingdom into the eternal kingdom? And so Matthew records all of this throughout his gospel, Jesus Christ embodying this new humanity life that like him, we would live as those who are not of the earth, but are born from above. Jesus Christ being the first of this new kingdom, and we come after him by faith. And so we live as such a people in not just our intents, right? Not just a heart posture of, I really want to live this way, or my, my desire and my intention is to live in such a way that's distinct. But we live both in our actions and in our speech, thus creating a distinctiveness that sets us apart from the earthly kingdom of which we've been saved, of what we have been saved out of. Right? Yes. You guys would agree with this. So we've been. Called into this kingdom, and we were talking just yesterday as um, yesterday as a as a family via text. And there was this article that was going around about a sect of Roman Catholicism that has taken themselves and, and they've gathered in this geographical location, and they're hunkering down because they're wanting to separate themselves from the world because they're finding it's too hard to live according to all the things that they believed are revealed to them as truth and and keep that consistent whilst living amongst culture. And so they're retreating in, into this place in the Midwest, and they're finding this massive influx of like-minded people. But the problem with that is that you become isolated and you become insular, and God's not called us to live in such a way. And so the tendency is, is when we begin to find these distinct these distinctives, and we realize that there is a unique way that we're called to live that is counter-cultural and in the face of that which the world has as its ideals and philosophy, it becomes difficult. And the tendency is to want to retreat and to hunker down with like-minded individuals, which is why, again, Sunday morning is so wonderful. This can be our momentary retreat where we come, where we encourage each other, and we're refreshed in what God is doing, and we remind ourselves of the mission that he's called us to outside of these walls. But the idea, what my point is in this is just to say that It isn't that insular type of living that we've been called to. The kingdom has been called to permeate. It's been called to be a presence within our present-day culture. It's been called to integrate. So this is who we are. This is the church. This is what we've been called to. This is what we as a church community, as a faith community, are seeking to understand for us in the 2020 this year that we are now in. What does this mean? How do we embody this distinctiveness? How do we live this distinctiveness out? Because as I said last week, the gospel is always outward facing. The gospel is for us as individuals and it affects us as individuals, both in the past for salvation and in an ongoing sense. But it isn't just end, it doesn't just end there. It does not just end there. But it's always outward facing. It's always meant to be going, to be sending, to be reaching, to be finding, to be seeking. That is the trajectory of the gospel. So look at Matthew chapter 20 with me, please. I was going to read all of the text. I still might. We'll start it. Actually, you know what I want to do is I want to begin at chapter 19, the very last verse right before chapter 20 and verse 30. So I'll start in 19, verse 30, and I'm gonna read on. I'm reading from the ESV, and, and you guys, this is the word of God. This is the word of God, which is living and active, right? So let's receive it as such this morning as I read it. This isn't just my, my words, and, and as I stumble across what I'm trying to say, but let's receive it this morning as God's word made alive to us by his spirit. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and the last... He did the same. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one's hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, Each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And again in verse 16, he says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem and he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem And the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will raise on the third day. And then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. And he said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed them, followed him, And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight, and they followed him. Father, today, again, we receive your word with gladness of heart. Father, we receive it with a a, a confession that we need to be changed, that we need to be conformed into your image, Lord God, that we and ourselves are not sufficient to do what we have been called to do. Lord, would you today empower us, for the work that you have called us again. Stir our faith, Lord, and incite us to action. Lord, and I pray that we would repent this morning where we have been uh, disobedient and living in unbelief in areas of our lives. We turn to you again. We receive your grace, Lord God, and we receive your word with thankfulness in your name. Amen. There's a term that I want to use this morning. As we read through that chapter, there might appear to be a theme that pops out in terms of the order of the kingdom of God in this first to last and last to first um, template that Jesus used multiple times throughout 20. Um, but we've already covered that, and so I'm choosing this morning, I don't want to look at that specific um, theme throughout the chapter 20. I want to look at something else. There's sometimes a, there's a term that we use within Christendom, and we've used it here before a number of times to describe the form and the function of God's kingdom. And that word is economy. You've, you've used that maybe perhaps yourself, God's economy, or you've heard, of, or you've heard someone use the term God's economy. And, and most of you know what an economy is, but just for the sake of this morning, an economy is essentially a management system, right? It's, it's measured often in input versus output or consumption versus production, um, which either a country or a region or a sovereign state uh, would live within, but simply put, just for a simple definition, economy is household management. It's what economy is. But in the kingdom sense, it can be more broadly understood as the lifeblood of its culture. Economy is, is the lifeblood. It's When it's healthy and when it's pumping, rightly, the body or that which it is a part of is healthy and pumping and working rightly. So when it's bad, it's Things are bad. When it's good, things are good, right? So, when we use the term kingdom economy in conjunction with, or when we use the term economy in conjunction with the kingdom, what we're really speaking of is the system of principles that God's kingdom tangibly functions as, or its values, or its lifeblood. So, when we talk about a kingdom economy, what we're talking about is how the kingdom functions. But see, unlike values, economy brings with it a sense of operation, the execution and the embodiment of values. You see what I'm saying? There's, there's action to this word economy. There's life within it. So the kingdom economy is, is how things function in God's realm, how the values are put to action, and the symbiosis of, of God and man and man and God and, and all of the, the principles. And so Things like sowing and reaping. That's a kingdom economy principle, right? Sowing and reaping. Or the command to store up heavenly treasure as opposed to earthly treasure. That's a a God's economy principle. Loving one's enemies. Peacemaking in the face of persecution. Provision of God for us through our radical generosity. These ideas that seem counterintuitive is really what they are, right? When we read them, we go, how does that work? That's because the kingdom's economy often and most of the time works in opposition in the sense of or opposite of culture's economy. So it's easy, again, to identify a kingdom principle by just looking at what an earthly principle often is. And we go, well, the flip side of that is probably what is really true. And so as we've been saying as we've gone through Matthew, God's kingdom economy isn't like the present world's economy, either present or past or future sense. What it values, what it promotes, what it seeks are often in opposition of what the world upholds. So when we read commandments like the one that Jesus made in in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, that we're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then he says, and all these things, speaking of the earthly provisions, will be added to you. Or just before that, in chapter 6, where he says, don't be anxious about your life or what you will eat or drink. See, these are radical reorientations of the human mind to the new economy and operation of God's kingdom and the way of life that its inhabitants are to live within. And we have to see them and understand them as such. So when we come across these counterintuitive statements within Scripture, Scripture, that was funny. I'm 40. When we come across these counterintuitive statements within Scripture, there's a reason for it. It isn't just to ruffle our feathers, but it's to be apprehended, it's to be understood, and it's to be applied our own life. Okay, so I say all of this today because within today's text, what I want to focus on, I'm going to to assert is one of the foundational principles of God's economy. It's vitally important. It's what God's kingdom functions from and operates as a basis from. And so I say all that, hopefully not to confuse, but just to give us an idea that there's, again, this symbiosis within God's kingdom. In verses 1 through 15 of chapter 20, Jesus tells us another parable. This one, though, on the heels of the statement, as we read in 1930, that many who are first will be last. And so he's setting up for what he's about to say, which is why I read verse 30. He makes that statement, and then immediately he launches into another parable. And in this parable, as we just read, the basic premise is that there's a landowner and he's got land that needs to be worked. So he goes out and he decides to hire some day laborers. And it says he goes out early in the morning and it says the third hour. And I was thinking, man, that is hardcore early in the morning. That's like Julio early in the morning. Am I right, bro? That's that's Julio's time of day, 3 a.m. I'm going, boy, that is early. So he goes into the town, and there's guys already waiting to be hired for the day at 3 a.m. And he goes again at 6. So he hires them and they go to work. And of course we know 6. Uh, uh, 6, 9, and 11 o'clock, and he goes, and these guys are working. At the end of the whole thing, he says this, I'll pay you, and there's just just disgruntledness between the first and the last, interestingly enough, right? The first group saying, man, that's messed up. Why did you pay those guys the same amount that you paid us? The displeasure between the first and the last is interesting, isn't it? That, that, that template that God gives of the first and the last or that Jesus states. Also too, I want you to know this in verse seven, one of the things that the, the final group says is this, they say that no one would hire us. So it isn't the implication isn't that they were lazy or that they slept in or that they didn't want to work. It was that they were perhaps there that entire day and just didn't get hired. Is it possible that maybe they were the less desirable of the group of workers? I'm not sure a little bit of hypothesizing, but just hold that verse seven there as we continue on. So I want to just ask you a question without a show of hands, be honest. Who amongst us here was kind of offended by this whole principle of Jesus' parable that these day laborers go out, they work unequal hours and they all receive the same amount of pay? It's a little bit maybe offensive. You might've read it and you're like, oh man, that bugs me. I'd be super bummed out right? The idea is that it doesn't seem fair, right? This isn't fair. This isn't fair. This ruling thought within today's culture of equity and equality, right? Because that's exactly what is promoted within culture today. Everything must come out as an equal sum for all parties included. And so we live in this ruling thought of that isn't fair, that the amount, amount of payment that is received should be equal to the amount of energy spent. That is a ruling principle of today. And even though most of us would probably agree with the landowner's response in verses 13 through 15 as being both accurate and true, where he says, didn't you agree with me for the amount that I was going to pay you? Right? So that, we would all agree with that, but still we're like, ah, that still isn't fair. Or am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Yeah, yeah, he is. Or do you begrudge my generosity? Yeah, essentially we are. But why? So why do we still feel as though something is wrong? It's because we can't detach ourselves from the ruling convention of this day and age. That reward should be commensurate to the services rendered. But again, within God's economy, there must be a reversal of human expectation. When one man is rewarded in excess of what has been earned, while another receives only a, the amount agreed, we detect unfair discrimination. But let me say this, the problem isn't with God's modus operandi. The problem isn't on God's end and how he does what he does. The problem is on our end, right? The problem is how we perceive things, and that they are often guided by human ideals. That's where the problem lies. See, Jesus is saying that in this parable, that there must be a reorientation away from the world's values and ideals towards a more accurate, robust life-giving kingdom thinking and kingdom living, and which though it might seem contra- contradictory in the one sense, is actually where peace and joy and fulfillment are found in this life. So this is the point in the parable and what I'm getting to today. This is what I want to say. But the foundation principle is that God's kingdom operates not from the basis of fairness, but from the basis of Grace. That is the point of what Jesus is saying. It is God who lavishly clothes the flowers of the field and feeds the bird of the air, who supplies every need according to his riches of glory, who is able to do far more and abundantly than all we ask or think according to his power. It is this God who delights to give his servants far more than they deserve. So you can see where, we're feathered, where our feathers are ruffled because it doesn't seem fair and equitable, we are looking at it from the wrong angle. This parable is about the grace, undeserved and unmerited, that is given to those whom God chooses. It isn't about what the laborers deserve. It's about the undeserved gift that the many others were given. And then he moves into this portion where it seems actually a little bit disjointed in verses 17 through 19, as sometimes when we read these things, and it's like Jesus did this, and then he goes this, and then he says this, and he goes this, and we're trying to find the common thread. Just listen to this for a moment. This idea of the undeserved and unmerited gift that Jesus gives and lavishes. And now here's Jesus for the third and final time he's gonna predict his death. But at the end of this prediction, he adds something that wasn't there the first two times. And he says this. He says, they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified And he will be raised on the third day. Jesus, what he's doing is he's actually summarizing the entire grace salvation narrative in just one statement. And he's saying that he is the embodiment or the personification of this unmerited gift. Right on the heels of him talking about, it is mine to do with as I please. And it isn't for you to begrudge me. It's for you to marvel and delight in the grace gift that is given. And here is what it is. It is me that is to be beaten, mocked, crucified, and risen again. See, God's kingdom isn't about who is deserving to be called into it. It's about the loving king who desires as many as possible that would come into his eternal life in his kingdom. This message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the generosity of the one for the sake of many, that is the message of the gospel. But as I said as we began, we have to remember that the gospel is always forward-facing. It's always outward-facing. It's not only what God does for us, but it's what he has done for all. So it must not ever stop here, but it must always go this way. And I know that you guys would agree with that. So what's the point of this, other than the fact that you know, we're, we're, we're talking about the significance of understanding the nature of our salvation? There's obvious importance to that, but I, in this room of people this morning, I think we all understand this concept of grace, of unmerited. But as it pertains, again, this is a foundational principle of the kingdom of God. And I want to just say again before we move on that we have to reorient the way that we think. We have to reorient what we expect. We have to reorient and guard ourselves from the equal outcome, equality, and equity for all culture that we live within, and speak of the greatest contradiction to that, which is Jesus Christ given for all. So not only is it just a contradiction that that goes in the face of, but it actually elevates the beauty of the contradiction, right, in Jesus Christ. You follow what I'm saying? So, aside from that obvious point, what's the significance of this parable as it pertains to us? As it pertains to us apprehending and understanding this truth. And I want to just pull two things out of it today with the time that's remaining. And they are uh, related and and interconnected with with one another. The first one is is this. And I, and I, I just want to say for a moment that it all falls under this heading of the economy of grace. Okay, this is what we are living within, this is how the kingdom functions, the economy with grace. So the first is this, the significance of understanding this as it pertains to us is that to live by and to live in grace, which is what we are called to do, it breaks the me-centric cycle that sin has caused and that sin keeps people in. It breaks the me-centric cycle, this that everything, again, when we think about economy of input, output, consumption, production, okay, it breaks this man-centered, me-centered tendency of looking inward. The me-centric cycle says, I give what I get. Okay, think about that for a minute. I give what I get. And so there isn't any symbiosis to this. It's just one-sided. It's just me, and it looks something like this. You know me, I'm good with my infographics, right? So here's the me-centric cycle where I give what I get. What I, what I put out is what I get back. And what I get back is what I put out, etc., etc. Even as believers, let me say this, and as Christ obeyers, you guys, we too can fall back into this type of thinking of giving and getting. Even if we're not careful to guard ourselves, it's so easy to do. Think of it like this, just in terms of the faith community context. How many of you have thought at one point, well, gosh, I've been serving in the nursery for the last six years. You're not disgruntled, but you know what? It's t- a little bit of me time is, is on the books now. Think I'm just going to take a break, and I'm going to concentrate on me. Okay, what's happening there? And I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that's bad in and of itself necessarily needing a little me time. But what I'm saying is this idea that I've been giving, 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 and what have I been getting, getting, getting? And so I'm just going to take a little bit more and give it a little bit less right now for this season. Or how about something like this? Like, man, I have helped so-and-so move the last four times, and I've only moved once, or maybe I haven't moved at all. And who was there with that one time I moved? There was like three guys because everybody was busy and etc. etc. Those are funny, and I'm, I'm making a little bit of light, but here's the thing is that it's easy to fall into those patterns of thinking, especially when it comes to this type of community context, and especially because in a couple of weeks at the beginning of February, we're gonna hold again our Sunday where we sign up to serve for the 2020 calendar, and when we do that, the tendency can be like, oh, man, I've been doing this the last three years, and I'm just sick and tired of it, but what does the kingdom economy say? How much have you received, and has that been proportionate to what you're giving? This isn't condemnation. This is just the little reality check again. This is a, a recalibration of the way that we think and that we approach things, and I hope this is okay. Because I think if we're honest, we've probably all thought that way. I have. I have, multiple times. I don't want to do this again. I'm the only one that ever does this. Nobody ever does this. You guys should do it for a while. I'm sitting down. Right? Listen, it's because of sin. This is our our, our flesh wants to see things as transactional. This is how we approach it. This is how culture approaches life. You do this, I'll do this. You do this for me, I'll give you this in return. Which is why we must remember that God did this. God did this. The amount of that transaction, you will never be able to meet that amount. So stop thinking transactionally and start thinking grace-based. And I would say too, remember, we are not of this world. You like that? Come on, I know you guys do. You like my infographics, I know you do. That was, I had to draw attention to that one because that was a... You might not have seen. I don't want you to miss something really significant to this morning. We're not of this world. Therefore, we don't think the way this world thinks. We don't act the way this world thinks. See, Jesus Christ, he bypassed this earthly principle of reciprocity. He bypassed it, which let's face it, we didn't have a whole lot to give to begin with, right? Imagine if Jesus held out and said, listen, okay, I'm going to die for you. So what are you going to do for me? what am I going to get from this whole thing? Now, let me say this. In a sense, that principle or that question does exist. I've died for you. Now, it's already been done. In light of that, what now will you do? What will be your response? So I don't want to negate. I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying, but I'm just making the point at extreme measures here. 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. This isn't transactional, this is grace. What measure of love the Father has given to us. In Ephesians 1, 8, then we live free from this me-centric cycle because grace, according to Paul in Ephesians, has been lavished upon us. I mean, these are these adjectives that are being used. Are they adjectives or are they verbs? That was a verb. Lavishing is a verb. Lavishing. It's lavishing love. There we go. The point is, is listen to the emphasis, listen to the trajectory of this. And then we in turn, as Jesus says in Matthew, and we've said it here a couple of times throughout this series, is that we have received without paying, so therefore give without pay, right? There's another kingdom economy principle. You've received without giving, therefore give without pay. So this leads to the second point of this this morning. So the first is that grace breaks this me-centric cycle that sin puts us within. And the next is that grace then breaks one cycle and it establishes another. So it isn't that it just breaks us and leaves us broken or leaves us with not understanding how we are to function. But then what it does is through Jesus Christ, it gives us the new form of how we are to function. So it breaks this idea that it's all about me. It's what I'm going to get and I'm going to give what I get, and it's going to be commensurate to each other. But now what it's doing is it's saying, no, you have received a surplus, but God. Those are the two words we love to say here so often, right? And don't miss this infographic, but God. But God being rich in mercy, which he has lavished upon us, the love of God which has been poured into our hearts, this idea of a deluge of grace that has been given, an unending. And the picture that I had as I was thinking about this was Revelation 22 and the picture that John has of the stream that comes from the throne room. And alongside of it is planted the tree of life and the tree's roots grow deep and that deep-rooted tree bears fruit. And this picture of an unending flow, an unending stream that you could never deplete, that will never run out, that will always be there That's what feeds us, you guys. That's what we draw from. This is the stream. It's the flow that we're to live within. It's the deluge that we're to tap into that will always be present, that is never ceasing. How magnificent and marvelous that is for us, isn't it? And so from this deep, unending sustenance of grace, From that, what do we give? Why do we give? Do we give because we're being coerced? Or do we give because Christ first gave to us? And the measure by which he gave, and the measure by which we received, we can and ought to then give in return. And so again, hear that cycle. It isn't what I give therefore, or what I get so I give, It's, man, what has been received, what was given to me outside of what I could do that I draw from and that now stirs and and is the impetus for my living. And at the very end of chapter 20, and I'm going to wrap it up here in just a few minutes, at the end of chapter 20, during the account of Jesus' healing of the two blind men, this measure of what is given is shown. And I just picked up on this because he says this, at the end of chapter 20, and he's walking by these two and it says, And the very last verse of 20, verse 34, and Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. See, the phrase here that's translated as pity in the ESV, it really means that Jesus was moved with compassion. And we've heard that in other places that under the compulsion of compassion is Jesus operates in the miraculous. But really this deep movement, it was was beyond just like, oh man, that's too bad. Or, you know, I just really feel bad for you right now, so I'm gonna heal you. That's not what this is speaking of. This is, it's a deep inner sense of love and care and a desire to see wholeness that was the impetus for which Jesus was moving in this moment. And so again, in light of this, what is the measure that we received and what's the measure then that we give? And it's embodied right here in Jesus Christ. Deep compassion, his loving care, that he would go beyond himself in that moment to hear the cries of, Son of David, extend your mercy unto us and be so moved then to act upon it. It was a deep desire for wholeness and love that compelled Jesus in that moment. And so again, this picture is to show us how we are to live with a deep compassion and a deep desire for wholeness and spiritual healing for the brokenness that we see around us. This is that now new economy of grace. God gives, God gives, God gives, God gives, and so we give and we give and we give. And it isn't about what we're going to get because now it's a conduit and it's only concerned with not restricting the outflow of that grace. It's only concerned with giving, 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 and not with receiving. And as we do that, we know that we will get and we will receive because God promises that and his word promises that for us as well. There is a... uh, now kind of immortalized line of a song from the 1969 Abbey Road album by the Beatles. And at the very end of the album, one of the last few words that Paul McCartney sings is, in the end, the love that you take is equal to the love you make, right? Great song, Great song horrible, horrible <laughs> truth. Actually, it's just error is what it is. It's not truth. He's got it flipped. It isn't what you take that is equal to what you give. It's what you have been given. And we ought to match that generosity which we received in like generosity. Would you agree with me? As I said last week, you guys, I feel like 2020 is going to be a significant year for us as a faith community. And I want you guys to be standing with me in faith and expectation of what God will use us for. And when I say significant, I mean in terms of finding our, 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 our very tangible means of affecting our city with the gospel of Jesus Christ. More than just a genuine, sincere desire to see the gospel affect Sacramento, and the neighborhoods that we live in, the surrounding areas. But I mean, I really believe that we're going to begin to see God move through the things that we do through our endeavors. Not to bless us because we're so much better than other churches, but just because I think we have positioned ourselves rightly with a deep, firm foundation. But it's understanding things like this that it doesn't end with us in what God has done. But that is only the beginning. And so we must continually remind ourselves the depths of depravity which we were rescued from. How far we have been saved and brought into life. And when we remind ourselves of that, it humbles us and it reminds us that, you know what, I'm not any better than this person here or this person there. And you know what, it moves us with that deep compassion in a desire to see wholeness and well, uh, a well state of living for those around us. So I would just ask that you guys would along with me seek God um, by his grace to break these cycles that we sometimes function within. Whether it's us as a community or in your own individual lives, be thinking about this in this next coming week as you leave here today. What are these cycles that you just kind of function in this input-output type of thing? And how can we tap in, in faith, to the grace of God that's already been given for us and break those things and begin to live as conduits, not as trash compactors or whatever. That was a bad analogy, but... I think sometimes I give you bad analogies just for the fun of it. I really want you guys to keep you, you know, I like to look at your facial expressions and... Uh, I know people doing this. I think it's great. So, would you please stand with me? Transactional concept is good. There you go. Transaction, rather than cyclical, it's con- con- conduital. Lord Jesus, um, as we have just, it feels like this morning has kind of flown by, in the sense of again that we've come and. We've gone about what we normally do on Sundays. But again, Lord, I just pray that you would, um, even in that, break this idea of of transaction, Lord, that I I come on a Sunday to give, so what am I going to get? Or I've given so much this last year in 2019. 2020 is really going to be about just focusing on me. Lord, I pray that by grace right now that you would convict our hearts and change us and confront the error in our thinking, Lord, that we would not see it, Father, in this cyclical sense, but we would see our lives and our faith community as a conduit, Lord God, a conduit of grace, a conduit of the gospel of Jesus Christ of, and a remembrance of what you have done for our sake, Lord God, and I pray, Father, concerning this upcoming year that you would incite us to action by faith, Lord. I pray that just this idea again, of, of so much that we've received, so therefore we give, that this overarching theme of generosity would be a theme of 2020. Whether it's our own personal efforts towards serving this faith community, whether it would be our, our financial sowings, Lord, into Capital City and into the AEBM and other things that you've brought before us, Lord, or, or whether it's just simply our attentiveness in prayer and in faith, Lord, to what you are about, Lord, I ask that there would be a measure of expectation that would be increased in faith for us today. Lord God, and and again, as we always say, it isn't for us. We don't do this, Lord, for our sake, but Lord, we do it for your glory. Lord, we want to align ourselves with what you're doing in this city. And we know that what ultimately you're about is giving glory unto yourself by the means of bringing men and women from darkness into light. And so use us, Lord. We want to partner with you. And so I just ask, Father, for, a, for an increase of faith, an increase of expectation, Lord God. And I pray for um, excitement as we go about, Lord. And, and, and just enliven our hearts again to the beauty of the gospel of grace. Enliven us again, Lord, we pray, to the excitement of what we once experienced, Lord, when we came to faith in those early years, Lord God, and, and how it was all-consuming, Lord, keep us from the, just the, the, the cyclical patterns of repetition of Sunday in and Sunday out without thinking Monday through Saturday of, of what you are about, Lord God. Make us aware and alert to the things that you are doing around us, Lord, so that we might join with you and partner with you and so fulfill the Great Commission and fulfill your plan for us in this day and age. Father, I thank you for this faith community. I thank you for each and every person that's here, that has given themselves, that's committed themselves, that has sown into this, Lord, that is is a part of who we are. Lord, we ask that you would add to us, not for the sake of feeling better about ourselves, but Lord, that we might be even more effective in this city. Lord, increase our resources, increase our abilities, Lord, and again, increase our expectation. And we... Ask for the grace of God to live in accordance with the word of God, that that which has been revealed to us, Lord. Help us, Lord. Stir us and compel us, Lord. We love you. Amen.